to me since we've recently arrived here in, in uh, Florida. I know many of you. For those of you who don't know, just my background, because it'll be relevant to part of what I'm sharing today, uh, I'm a chaplain in the United States Navy uh, on my ninth tour, I think it is, here in Pensacola, working at the Center for Information Warfare down at uh, Corey Station. And just recently, my previous assignment, where family and I moved from, was Cape May, New Jersey, where I was working at the Coast Guard Boot Camp. The reason I share that in passing, one of the questions I invariably get from people when they ask the question, they find out I'm a military chaplain, they're asking about what we do, sometimes you don't get to see a lot of it, one of the questions, especially in today's world, how free are you to preach the gospel still? This is a hostile world. There's so many challenges. People don't like the gospel. Never have, but levels of hostility and persecution sometimes come and go. And in today's culture, the speaking, the unadulterated gospel is becoming less and less popular in various ways. You military chaplains, what's that like for you? You're in an environment like that. Well, legally, we are still protected. The only person who tells me what I can and cannot say, technically speaking, is my own presbytery that ordained me. And, uh, and by the way, so I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, in the PCA. Us military chaplains are endorsed by a joint uh, agency that's shared between the OPC, the PCA, and other organizations to supervise us as chaplains. And essentially, whenever anyone asks, well, who tells you what you can and can't preach about, I point back to my PCA's ordaining presbytery. That's who dictates what I can and can't say. That's legally how it still works in the United States military. But the way I would like to share with you, so you have kind of an inside glance, what I'm going to do this morning is share with you essentially a variation of one of the sermons I used to give to the Coast Guard recruits back at my previous assignment. The series I used to love to walk through, and I would often repeat it because at boot camp setting, you might imagine, I have essentially a different congregation every eight weeks. Every eight weeks, all the people that were there have since graduated, moved on to the fleet, and a whole new population has come in. So I would often repeat this uh, series, and I like to do for them a series on putting on the full armor of God. Kind of fits the military theme. It gives them a sense as to, and it's something that the, the metaphors and the images that Paul is using is something that's relatively familiar for us, especially as we begin that process of military indoctrination training. So the idea of putting on a Kevlar helmet, a flak jacket, getting your belt ready, learning how to use your weapon, these are very familiar concepts to our, to our recruits in different contexts. So I used to love to, to share this. And what I'm going to do is share one of those six messages on putting on the full armor of God that I used to give to the recruits. I'll direct it to you, of course, this morning. But so you can get a glimpse as to what it was that your chaplains, the chaplains that you support through the PCA and the OPC, have been presenting to our military members. This particular message will be coming from the uh, particular topic of putting on the helmet of salvation. For context, of course, I'll read the background of the entire passage from which we use this metaphor. Paul uses military metaphors in different places, but this is perhaps one of the most famous here in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So for context, for background, let me read the entire context of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, famously referred to as putting on the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 10, I'll be reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To 
to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray briefly before we open up God's word this morning. Father in heaven, it's a blessing and a reminder that you are a God who we can know. We look up, we see so many things in the world around us that give us glimpses into your character, your power, your majesty. But not only did you give us those vague impressions, you also spoke to us through many prophets in different times and places, and especially through your son. So as we open up this, your word, this, your revelation this morning, open our minds that we might be able to truly understand and see what it is that you would communicate to your people this morning. In the name of our King Jesus, our King, I ask it. Amen. Before we even dive in much, I just want to draw your attention to one relatively obvious thing. Maybe you've read this passage before, maybe you've heard it, relatively famous passage, but just stop and observe what is the immediate first application that Paul gives after he tells people and outlines putting on the full armor of God. What's the very first consequence of that? Put on the full armor of God, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, sword of the spirit. What's the very first thing? that he tells people to do immediately upon doing all that. Pray. Take up all these things. Pray. In the, it's the very next word there in our English Bible. Praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with perseverance. But prayer, supplication for the saints. And in particular, the, the one thing he's praying for is pray for me, him, as he goes that he might do so boldly. Communicate the gospel boldly. We're going to come back to that because that's relevant for the larger message. Now, as I mentioned, I used to give a series of six different messages to the recruits at, uh, at, at Cape May, the Coast Guard recruits. What I'm going to be doing this morning is the message I would often give on the helmet of salvation. Now, the first background you have to stop and think about about any piece of the armor or the armor of God as a whole. Anytime I've ever searched for the armor of God, sometimes I would try to put it in a program. I'd like to use a little graphic, and you put it in Google, right? And you search for an image of the armor of God. And invariably, what do I find? A Roman soldier of some sort standing with the sword, the helmet, and doing what with it? Standing there. Maybe he's got a spear, too. Or even worse, sometimes I find those little precious moments pictures of the little kid with the oversized helmet that's barely, and he's standing there, take up the sword of the spirit. It's very cute, isn't it? One time I want to find someone actually using the sword or taking the shield and getting shot at. That's the image he's talking about right there, right? Take up the shield of faith because you're getting shot at. The point I used to try to remind the recruits to, and I'm going to remind you this morning, we put on the armor of God. When do you put armor on? Military members know that this instinctively. When you're about ready to knock off for the day and head back home, when you're, when you're about to take leave and, and sit by the pool or go to the beach, and you're putting your helmet and You put armor on when you're getting ready to fight. The armor of God should be an encouragement to you that God is protecting you. These different aspects of the Christian life are there to protect you, but they're there to protect you in combat. It is a fight we're inviting you to go into. This world is warfare. Put on the armor of God because it's a battlefield. So with that context in mind, I want to take a look at what it means to put on specifically the helmet of salvation. Now, when we talk about helmet of salvation, let me just kind of put a little background and context exactly what he's getting at here. I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean make sure that you come to salvation. He's not, this is not an invitation to be saved because different contexts make that clear. First of all, who is the book written to? He says at the very entrance of the book, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, who is the book written to? To the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In various places, he's talking to them. Now, of course, we recognize that the apostle is not assuming that every single reader, either now or even back in his contemporary day in Ephesus, was a born-again, regenerate believer. 
But that was the person he was writing to. That was his intended audience. He's writing to saints. That's why he would refer to that, that famous passage when he says, it is by grace that you have been saved. Past tense. He's talking about their salvation. So he's writing to people that for the purpose of his writing, he's assuming that you're a believer. You're, you're, you've experienced salvation. So what does it mean to take salvation and use it as a piece of armor? The salvation that he's presuming as he writes this that you already have, what does it mean to live this? Well, it's important to remember what salvation is. And my role as a military chaplain, when I would speak to these crowds of people, I would often have uh, populations of 80, 100, 120, 140 coming into the chapel. Again, a different crowd of about 100 people every eight weeks. But my presumption was that many of them were coming to church to escape from their drill instructors for an hour or coming to boot camp or coming to the chapel at boot camp because they'd been to church once and it was nice and this was something better than sitting in their squad bay and having to deal other things. Some of them, I, I met some tremendous uh, firm believers, met many recruits that had maybe gone to church a few times or had gone to churches that they had never heard the gospel. And so it was so important to me as I gave this message, and I'll remind you all as well, what salvation is. Let me talk about that, what salvation is. In fact, this is December. We just sang a Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that wonderful Advent-style, Christmas-style hymn. Why did Jesus come into the world even before he was born? Remember what the angel told his father. You are to name him Jesus, because why? Jesus means Yahweh saves. You are going to give him that name because he will save his people from their sins. And an interesting play on words there. If you were to ask my family, you know, or maybe you've heard them accuse me of having a uh, singular sense of humor. I love playing with words. I love kind of juxtaposing. I love the puns. And there's almost a little juxtaposition, quasi-pun, used in the angel's words here. Did you notice it? You are to give him the name Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. One little glimpse among the many that we have in Scripture that Jesus was not simply a man not simply some person that was born that did great things. You are to give him the name Yahweh saves because Yahweh will save his people from their sins, this child. So in this Christmas season, we remember Jesus came in the world to seek and to save the lost, to save sinners. And even before he was born, the angel was proclaiming that to his family. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from what? I, I run into so many people that are familiar with the church or take on the name of Christian. And if I ask them in conversations, Jesus is the Savior. Oh, yes, I agree. Jesus is the Savior. Saving us from what? Oh, from what a rotten world this is. Or, or saving us from our discouragement. Or saving us from various things. And as I'll touch on, there's a tiny element of truth to that. But my goodness, what did he come to save us from? He came to save us from our sin. I'd like to have you follow with me. And again, the reason I would do this for the recruits is I wanted them to start getting a large scope of the different things that are communicated in scripture about salvation. So I'm going to bounce around to a few different scriptures, a little more than I typically would in a sermon. But if you would follow with me, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. This was one of the other passages that I would point to to help them understand truly what we're talking about when we think of salvation. As you're turning here, I'll reference something that Paul mentions just in passing in, in the same book of Ephesians that we're looking at, that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, trespasses, he made us alive with Christ, and it's by grace that you have been saved. Again, there's that word again, saved, but saved from what? From our sin our trespasses, not all these bad things that happen to us, although that is in view of the larger scope of salvation, but what did Jesus come to accomplish? Salvation from our sin. Romans chapter 5 is very powerful to communicate, especially to people who have never heard any of this before. 
because it's so blunt. Paul's bluntness about what our status is apart from the gospel is laid out in very concentrated form right here. Romans chapter 5, if you look with me in verse, we'll start in verse, let's start in verse uh, 6. For while we were still weak, as other translations use the phrase powerless, when we were weak, at the right time Christ died for who? All those good people that really deserved salvation, right? All the people that had it more or less together that just needed a little bit of help. The people that were, you know, deserving. Christ died for who? Ungodly. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And this is very familiar in military context, too. Most folks are familiar with some of the Medal of Honor winners who have received that medal posthumously oftentimes because at some point they laid their life down for the, for the friends and brothers. And that's a common idea, even the pagan culture back in this day, of people laying their life down for someone they thought worthy. Jesus laid his life down for the unworthy. For a good person, someone might dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from what? This again, from the wrath of God, the justice against our sin. And so sometimes I would pause and say, that's why I like to welcome you all this morning. Because as I look around the room, what I see is a group of powerless, ungodly, unrighteous sinners. And to make the point, a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, you're one of those hellfire brimstone preachers. You... No, I'm just kind of quoting what Paul said. This is what the Bible says we are. That's what gives us hope. Not that Christ died for good people. Because when we're honest, we realize, when especially the more we get to know who God is, the more we realize that this well does describe us, powerless, ungodly, unrighteous sinners. And what in the world hope is in that, except for the fact that that's who Jesus came for? All right? If you're familiar with the, the parable that Jesus gave, not for those 99 righteous people that had it all together, he came for the sheep that was lost. Jesus had told that parable about the the shepherd with a hundred sheep, and 99 were in the fold, and one of them was lost, and that's the one the shepherd went after. To, To illustrate, he didn't come into the world to save the people that had it all together, that were doing well. He came to seek and to save the lost. And I'd like you to turn with me to another passage, a couple of chapters, excuse me, a couple of books over in Paul's letters to the book of Colossians as it talks about the consequences of salvation. As you turn here, let me give a little background, a little theology, and then we'll dive into the, into the personal application of it. In today's world, in today's theological discussions, if you follow them at all, I've noticed one dynamic that keeps rising up, and that's that people really don't like this idea of a blood atonement this idea that Jesus had to take the wrath and justice of God on himself. And the way I've shared this before in other contexts, when people think, oh, justice, you know, retributive justice, you know, wrath, that's that's such an Old Testament thing, that's so archaic. But what points out that this is just a universal reality, stop and think, maybe in the last year, about the most horrendous, vile thing you've seen on television or in the news. Just a crime, maybe done to, to an innocent person, relatively innocent person, I mean innocent of, of not deserving of that particular uh, action to be done to them. Uh, innocent bystander in that context. Who of us is innocent? I should clarify. <clears throat> but something that was done maybe to a child or someone who d- was not deserving of that kind of crime, and you read it in the news, And is there something in your heart that just cries out for justice? Or if you've seen something like that and you find that they got off on a technicality or a very light sentence that's serious, 
if you talk to your friends, even unbelieving friends, what are they going to say? That was so unjust. That wasn't right. Because all of us know somewhere there's such a thing as justice. The problem we run into is realizing that in God's standard, we deserve that justice just as much. Our sins might not be the front page. It might not be in human eyes as bad as what someone else did. But we're not comparing ourselves to that. We're comparing ourselves to the holy standard of God and realizing that he is just. He's holy. And so God's anger, justice against sin, is not because God's too angry. It's because he's perfect, he's holy, and he loves righteousness. So here we are, looking at what salvation is. And these debates are going on because people don't like the idea of a God who's just and is holding people accountable. And they certainly don't like the idea that there's a substitutionary atonement, that, that Jesus would die for sin. Now, <clears throat> the answer to that, if I can put it bluntly, is have you tried reading the Bible? <laughs> what was the entire Old Testament about? The entire worship? What was their worship focused around? What, what is it that John the Baptist said? The first words out of his mouth as he was explaining to his, his disciples who Jesus was. Behold, that is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Referencing all those Old Testament sacrifices that were made. And so, rightly so, we in the Reformed world, especially the theologians and those that are, that are defending biblical truth, are emphasizing the fact that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners to save us from our sin, to be that atonement, to set us free. And you will not hear me ever deny that. I cannot emphasize that enough. And that's partly what I would communicate with the recruits to help them understand this is what Jesus did. He came into the world to save us from God's wrath by being that atonement, to set us free. At the same time, and hopefully you're following here, in the military, strategy in particular, there's a, a term, a concept that are used. Some of you might even be familiar with it. Ways, ends, and means. And it's in, an, in a military operation. It's important for all of us to understand what the final goal is, as well as what are the means that we're trying to use to accomplish that and what kind of what the, the method there is. When we're talking about the helmet of salvation, if you follow me, Paul is assuming, based on everything else I've read in the letter up to this point, he's assuming that his readers have understood what it was that Jesus did and how we've received that salvation, right? In other words, to use the military phrase, he's already talked and communicated and, and told us about the ways and the means of how salvation was accomplished, that blood atonement of Jesus and what it means to have that faith in him, the salvation that comes by faith alone is, is famously talked about in that second chapter of Ephesians. But when he's talking about the helmet of salvation, I think much more in mind he's looking at what salvation accomplishes for us. In other words, if you were to ask a military general, what's the purpose? What is, the, what is your goal? If you look at the immediate goal, they might say something along the lines of, well, the destruction of the enemy or their, the, you know, minimizing their ability to fight the battles, right? They're, they're trying to do that. But if you take a step back and ask the question, no, no, why are you fighting? Well, it's to establish peace in the long term, to accomplish our ends so that we don't have to fight anymore, if you if it makes sense. Why did the United States fight in Japan and Germany? Well, to accomplish the, the, the enemy's lack of ability to keep fighting. That was the primary immediate goal. But there was a much bigger goal in mind, which was to reestablish peace so we don't have to fight anymore. If you were to ask, why did Jesus come into the world it is an absolute correct, right answer to say he came into the world to save us from our sin, to, and to accomplish God's forgiveness for us. But if you take a step back, you can still ask, well, why did he do that? What was the larger purpose? Why did he choose to do that? And that's where Paul goes in so many other places when you talk about the consequences of salvation. What does it mean to take salvation and put it on and wear it as a helmet that's going to get you through so many of the other spiritual battles to know your salvation. Why did Jesus die for you? Yes, 
to accomplish our salvation, to take away, to take our sin on himself and set us free. But why did he do all that? If you've turned with me to the book of Colossians, we'll take a look at chapter 2. And I want you to see what Paul gets at and what he emphasizes here, as well as many other places, but this is perhaps one of the, the most poignantly worded. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, sins again, that was our problem. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Why did he do that? Let me unpack that a little more, and then we're going to move on to the consequences. He did that to save us from our sin. The recruits at Cape May understood this so instinctively because they were living in a world where there was constantly infractions being raised against them. Each one of them had a training jacket that started, and anything they did, any minor infraction of the very intense rules at the boot camp of Cape May were were written down and included in a code against them and to try to help them understand what the gospel is really meaning and what that substitution meant. Paul talks here about the written code being, and there was a written code in a very real sense that the recruits had to deal with there in Colossians. And imagine you're a recruit and you're getting one infraction, one record of counseling, one, one demerit after another, just piling up, and you have this code that's against you. And at Cape May, it was a very significant thing. If the recruits started getting more and more and more of these written codes against them, there were very significant consequences to it. Sometimes they wouldn't graduate on time. They'd have to get moved back in training. Or eventually, they might not even be worthy of joining the Coast Guard if there were significant enough challenges against them. And they would fear that. And the way I tried to illustrate the gospel, and I, I hope this doesn't come across as trite, but it just captured to them, and I hope it communicates to you again, the freedom that we have. Imagine... If the Coast Guard allowed this, which it doesn't, but hypothetically, if it did, imagine you have a recruit that was doing so well that they had no infractions. They were doing every, they were completely doing everything by the book, and their record was empty, completely free. And if the Coast Guard allowed this, imagine what it would be like if they just told one of their friends who was struggling, it's like, this is what I've got to do, and I have to graduate on time because my family's counting on me, and I've got some sick relative here, and I've, I've, I've got to graduate on time. And, and imagine if this one recruit that had a completely clear record said, hey, listen, you know, if we were allowed to do this, just let me take all those infractions, change the name on it, we'll run one line it, and I'll sign it, and I'll put them in my training jacket. If you did that, that kind of captures the idea of what it is to be set free. Jesus did that for us, taking all of our written, and I love the language that Paul uses there in Colossians, that written code that's against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, right? In other words, taking it on himself. He put that on the cross so that when God looks at you and looks at your record, what does he see? Absolute clean perfection. Now, if you turn with me again back to the book of Galatians, I want to unpack, excuse me, I want to unpack why. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he set us free? What was his larger purpose in making sure that you were completely spotless, clean, that the record that was against you, that anything that God's justice would have held against you was taken to the cross? Why did he do that? If you turn with me to the book of Galatians, we'll be looking at chapter 4, and it's quite clear... of exactly why, what the larger purpose was. And I love how it's worded here in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
in order to redeem those who were under the law, right? That's what we've been talking about, to set us free, to redeem us, to buy us back, to take our sin on himself, to set us free so that we were no longer in bondage to sin. Why? It's the very next phrase that he uses. Why? Why did he do that? What was the purpose? Why did Jesus come into the world to save us from our sin? Let me read it from the beginning again. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Jesus came into the world to die for sinners, to adopt you. That's why he bled. That's why he became that blood atonement. That's why he became the blood sacrifice. When I was a younger Christian, just as I was understanding these things for the first time, I had so focused on the atonement, rightly so, and trying to understand that's what Jesus did. He came. He came into the world. But the more I've studied Scripture, there is a sense in which Paul's focus is to acknowledge that and emphasize and, and talk about the glory of what it was that Jesus did in order to understand how deep and high and wide his love is. Why did Jesus come into the world? Not just because that was a good thing to do, not simply to show what kind of person, not simply because sin needed to be dealt with. The larger purpose that is explicit here and plenty of other places I could show you if we had time, he did it in order to adopt you. In other words, our sin had been a barrier that had kept us isolated, cut off outside of God's family. He dealt with the sin in order to bring us home, bring us back into the family, to bring us back into adoption. Now, just as a review, when we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, what was the very first application again of putting on the full armor of God? Praying. You're going to notice that theme. When you put on the helmet of salvation, one of the first things that you're invited to do is, in other words, when you realize what your salvation is for, that you have been adopted into his family, your first invitation is to be able to talk to your father, your father in heaven. All of a sudden, all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the guilt that rightly separated us from God has been dealt with. We've been adopted. We've been brought back home in order to have a reconciled relationship again with our father. And that's what invites us to pray. We don't pray simply as a rote process, simply as a religious exercise. We pray because we're talking to our Father, the one who brought us home, the one who adopted us. We pray to him. And look at the words that are used here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts to do what? To cry out to him as a father. To cry, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And that even gets more powerful. Many of you have probably heard, but it, it bears repeating. That phrase, Abba, many people think it's a band or music group. Abba, maybe you've heard it before. It's a very unique choice of words. It means father technically speaking, if you look at it in the dictionary, but it's that very first word, you can almost see it, those, one of the earliest words that a Hebrew child would learn is they're learning how to speak, right? Anyone remember what your first word was? Do you remember saying it? Probably not. I imagine you're too young. I won't embarrass too many of my children, but the, uh, you know, mama, papa, daddy, and the reason those are first words are because they're kind of easy for a little child to say as they're learning their consonants. Sarah, can I give a little quick story and embarrass you a little bit? Is it okay? When Sarah first, her first word was mama, but it was one of those where she's learning to say it as a baby and, and just learning that little consonants. And it was very cute because when she started, she couldn't stop. She would like, mom, 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 and it just kept going. But it's because it's easy for a child to say, and that's essentially what that word Abba was. You can almost hear it as you say it, Abba. You can almost imagine a little baby saying, because that's a, that's a baby word. And essentially, if you could translate it, it would be Daddy, Dada, Father. Jesus bled and died 
to do that. To invite you into a relationship with God, adopt you into his family that is so real, so deep, so powerful, that you can call him daddy. That's what salvation is. When you put the helmet of salvation on, that's your invitation. You are protected from this world, the hostility, the challenges, the difficulties, because you know that the God who created heaven and earth is your daddy. Is that going to make you feel more protected? Is that going to make you feel more safe in this world? You're an heir. Now, what is that word heir? What, what conjures your mind when you think of the word heir? A couple things come to my mind. The one, just because it's been in the news recently, is the heir of the throne of England. Queen Elizabeth died recently. Her heir was Charles, who is now King Charles, right? You have this heir. The other thing that comes to my mind, again, when I think of military settings and boot camp and and taking this passage with it and the application, you might remember that Prince William, if I'm not mistaken, served in the Royal Navy, and uh, Prince Harry had actually served in the Royal Marines, if I'm not mistaken. So my understanding is each of them went through a boot camp experience, but do you think it might be different? The recruits at Cape May were under so much stress, so much fear. Many of them that I talked with had tried other careers. It didn't work out. This was sometimes their last chance to get a stable career, and they've got a family counting on them, and there's just all this stress on them, fear. I've got to make this work. I've got to accomplish this. And in boot camp, the other thing, if you're not familiar, they try to mess with your identity. They try to tell you what a rotten person you are and how, how, how beat down and, and you can't do anything right. Do you think your boot camp experience might have been a little different if you knew that you were also the Prince of England who was the heir to the throne? I can't imagine that the experience that someone going through a military boot camp challenging experience might be a little different if you knew that your future was to sit on the throne of England. Your future is to sit on the throne of this world. What has Jesus promised you? That you will rule with him. Do you not know that we're going to be judging angels? That's the, 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 the encouragement that Paul gives of why we shouldn't be bringing our lawsuits before unbelievers, but before believers, because we're going to be standing in judgment of angels. Christian, we are going through this boot camp experience called life. It's challenging. But what is in your future? You're an heir of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if it doesn't sound too silly for me to say it this way, each one of you is a prince or a princess in God's kingdom. You are adopted child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What does that make you? Your majesty. Your majesty. Next time one of the Christians in the church gets on your nerves, don't forget you're talking to royalty. Each one of you in this room who has faith in Christ has been adopted into the family of the king. You are a child of the king. Think about who that makes you. And what does that accomplish for you? Put on that helmet of salvation. That's what salvation is. Salvation means Jesus has died for you, but more than that, you've been adopted into his family. You have complete access to the throne, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to pray to him. And your identity as you walk through the challenges of this world is knowing that your future is to reign with him. If that's real, does that put a different perspective on going through the challenges in this world? Okay, the challenges are still going to hurt. My assumption is, again, having gone through these before, I've never talked with anyone, I've never done study, but my assumption is that uh, those princes, uh, Prince William, Prince Harry of England, had to go through the same stuff that everyone else did in the boot camp and survive and pass the same. There's going to be challenges in this world, and the fact that we know what our future is doesn't make them lighter. They're challenging. They're hard. But that helmet of salvation sets you free when you know what your future holds. You know what is going on, and you know what the future is. Friends, put on that helmet of salvation. One last passage I'd encourage you to turn, with, turn to with me. Book of Romans chapter 8, and we'll close here. The reason I'm turning here, among others, is this is the other place that Paul uses that phrase, Habba, to communicate what it is that our salvation has accomplished. Jesus came into the world. He died for sinners. That, that beautiful uh, <clears throat> image of, of him being that blood atonement, perhaps one of the, the most striking and, and, 
and powerful descriptions of it is in that book of Romans, chapter 3. When he talks about we were justified by that, that sacrifice of atonement. But there in chapter 8, he's talking about the consequences, what it means for us to live with that salvation. What are the consequences? How do we live as saved Christians, and what is the benefit to us? And let me just walk through this to remind what all the glorious benefits of that salvation is that I'm going to encourage you to wear as a helmet as you go through this life, as you're getting shot at, as we walk through the battlefield of life, how you're remembering of the salvation that you have that was bought at a price that you have received, all those things accomplished for you right now. Let me start in verse chapter, excuse me, verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. First of all, because of who we belong to, of course, we should live accordingly. Brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, there it is again, sons of God. Sons of God, daughters of God. You are a child of the living God, which again is not an automatic thing. In one vague sense of the words, every human is someone who was made in uh, God's image, and we are his creation, and Paul can use that phrase referring to humanity that he used, uh, borrowed uh, in the book of Acts, when he says, we are his offspring, referring to humanity. But clearly here, he's talking about a very special relationship that's not applied to just everyone by the fact that you're existing. He's talking about those who are led by the Spirit, those who are born again, those who have the Holy Spirit in them, Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. There's that word again, adoption. You've been brought into the family of the king. And again, what's the first consequence of that? You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, here it is again, heirs. Not only, you put it this way, when I was young and I started to really understand the gospel, I understood what it meant that Jesus had come into the world to save me from sin, to set me free, to forgive me, to invite me into eternal life. I'm not making this up, but my image, maybe not quite this literal image, but what I felt was essentially that God had forgiven me so the eternal condemnation that I deserved in hell was, was, was not something I had to worry about because he set me free. He took care of that for me. He freed me from my sin, and therefore I had the right at that point to have eternal life. And so I had this image that I was going to go into heaven and go find a corner and kind of sit and hope no one noticed me. Maybe have a dunce cap on, in fact. Because... I had the image that I was forgiven, I was set free, I was set free from the consequences, but boy, he still must be mad at me because he knows what I've done. He, he remembers that, right? And that's, he wouldn't want someone like me in his kingdom. Now, somehow by the skin of my teeth, I, I escaped, I got in, but, you know, I'll, I'll sit off to the side. That was my image. That was kind of what I understood salvation to be. Until the more I started understanding what it meant to be adopted as sons, and inheriting as an heir. That's who you are, Christian. We cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him and in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're fellow heirs with who? What's a fellow heir, right? It's, it's someone who's going to inherit the state equally, right? You're an equal heir with Jesus, the Son of God. That's the depth by which you've been adopted. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's essentially two things that I encourage you to take with you when you think about putting on the helmet of salvation. The first one is the confidence of knowing what your future holds, that you will reign with him, that he has promised eternal life for you. And consequently... 
that the sufferings in this world are temporary. And that was the hope that we had to give to the recruits all the time. We would get recruits that would come in week three and week four of training, and they were exhausted. They were beat down. They felt like they could do nothing right. The, the, the threats of, of getting kicked out or, or get, having major discipline was hanging over their heads. And they would come in our office, and, and sometimes they would say, I can't, do th- I can't be in the Coast Guard. This is too hard for me. And we always had to remind them, this is not the Coast Guard. <laughs> this is boot camp. If you can survive the next couple of weeks, and sometimes to, to kind of try to make light of it, at the same time to make a serious point, I would tell them, if you thought that the next six years that you had signed up for in the Coast Guard were going to feel just like this, then I would run for the gate too. <laughs> this is temporary. This is small compared to what it, what. your career in the Coast Guard is going to be, and it's not even worth comparing. They're so different. You see the analogy here? Our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Now, I'm so cautious because I have sat down with people who have cried, who have wept, who have faced some of the most horrendous tragedies as a chaplain, that's part of our job, to be ministers when people are suffering, and I never, ever want to come across as if I'm minimizing the suffering or ever trying to say, oh, it's not that bad. No, the suffering in this world is bad. It is really bad. But it's almost like an algebraic formula. If, If it's this here, it's not worth comparing. The pastor I used to attend back in when I was in college, used to use this image that always stuck in my mind. Imagine if you had the balance scale, right? You know those traditional scales you used to use where you put some weights on one side and on the other, and, and as soon as it starts to balance, then you know it's, it's the weight. He said, imagine if you had this really giant uh, set of uh, balance scales and to try to figure out which is heavier, you put a feather on one side and a battleship on the other one. It's like, why would you do that? That's not worth comparing. That's the image that comes to my mind. There are certain things they're not worth comparing because it's so radically different. Yes, our suffering is real here, but not worth comparing to the eternal life that is going to be ours. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There it is again, sons of God. And what is it that we're connecting that to? Our future, our future hope, the fact that things are going to be different. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The helmet of salvation you wear right now is the hope that this is real, that this is going on, and the suffering in this world is temporary. If you have experienced that salvation, you wear that knowing the confidence that your salvation, Jesus came into the world to die for you, to take our sin on himself, to adopt you, And what's the other consequence of that? That he's going to destroy the evil in this world and to renew it? That's part of that package, so to speak, of what salvation is. That's why Jesus came to die for us, is to redeem us and to bring us home to a world that will not suffer, will not sin. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And there's that fancy, the really deep theologians, the people who really have studied Paul in tremendous depth, original languages and the like, they have a really technical term for what Paul just said here. You ready for it to write it down? It's called now and not yet. Are we adopted as sons? Well, didn't he just say, past tense, we've been adopted? And then he says, we're eagerly waiting for our adoption? It's both. Everything we've experienced is so real right now, but it's only kind of in a a baby form. (coughs) He even uses that term, first fruits. I grew up in Florida, so I had never really understood quite what that meant. With the sole exception that we had an orange tree in the backyard. And I started understanding what that meant when you start to see the orange blossoms and you start to see those bare first fruits come out. And that's telling you essentially that the tree is healthy and there's a lot more coming. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, so we have it now, but we're talking it's a baby form. It's going to be much, much, much more. For in this hope we were saved. 
But hope that is seen isn't hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, and likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And here's that second consequence. If you experience salvation, if you know it, if you're going to live the, the outworkings, the consequences of Jesus Christ dying for sinners and, and accomplishing that salvation for you, what it, here it is again. You are free to pray. And I mean free to pray to your Father in heaven. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The image there is sometimes when the pain or whatever's going on is so intense, you don't even know what words to use, but you can just groan and know that the Lord's there listening to that. You are invited to go before the Lord in honest prayer knowing that the Lord is interested even in hearing you groan. That's the depth of reality that your relationship has invited you that Jesus bought for us to adopt us as his children. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's that great promise. You've heard it before. And in addition to all of that, we also know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his, of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Interesting, isn't it? Past tense, he glorified. And we know that's future, but it's so real. It's so confident. It's something we can sink our teeth into right now that Paul just uses past tense those he glorified. So what shall we say in response to this? I'm just not going to make much more comment besides to give Paul's words that are so powerful as we close here. What can we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, fellow heirs, princes, and princesses in the kingdom of God, this is what salvation is that he bought for you. Wear it. Live it. Put it on as a helmet as you walk through this world. Remember who you belong to. Remember what awaits you, that you are an heir of the kingdom to reign with him. And remember what access that gives you to pray in all sorts of circumstances, that you have a king who loves to hear the prayers of his people because your king is also your daddy. Live that. Wear that helmet of salvation because nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you would allow me to pray.